Section 24 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. The Medici, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. Lorenzo only lived for two months after effecting the reconciliation between the King of Naples and the Pope. He had for years suffered, like his father and his grandfather, from gout, and all through the year of 1491 his health was rapidly failing. In consequence, he had begun to entrust part of the public affairs to his eldest son, Pietro, and giving the latter advice regarding his future conduct as head of the state, Lorenzo specially warned him never to forget that his position was simply that of a citizen of Florence, telling him that his own success had been mainly due to his uniform care on this point. In February 1492, Lorenzo's attacks became so severe that he was unable to attend to any business. Early in March, the three years expired, during which his son, Giovanni's appointment as a cardinal was to be kept secret, and it was publicly announced. He was formally invested with his new rank at the Badia of Fiesole, and a grand banquet was given at the Medici Palace in honor of the occasion. But Lorenzo was only able to be carried in on a litter to see the brilliant company assembled to do honor to his son. Giovanni, now sixteen, had forthwith to leave for Rome to take his seat in the sacred college, and on the 12th of March he left Florence for the papal city. Nine days later, Lorenzo had himself carried to Careggi and prepared for his end, gathering around him several of his closest friends and making them read to him portions of his favorite authors. From his deathbed, he wrote to Giovanni a long letter of advice and farewell. This letter to his son is a very remarkable one striking as it is for its evidence of calm equanimity and mental vigor unimpaired even by severe illness and approaching death it is yet more so for the light it throws on lorenzo's character for to a large extent it contradicts forcibly the view of him which a long succession of writers resolutely biased against him and have made the prevailing one not remarkable perhaps had it emanated from some other source it is so to us solely because of the false impression of the man which has been given to us. Lorenzo died on the 9th of April, 1492, at the age of 43, at his villa of Careggi, that much-loved home of his leisure hours, where Plato and Homer, Virgil and Horace, had been worshipped and the muses revered. His two closest friends, Polizian and Pico della Mirandola, were with him to the last. As his end approached, he sent for a priest who administered to him the last sacrament. He got out of bed to receive it, kneeling, but was too weak and had to lie down again. He had already sent to ask Savonarola to come to him, and it says much for Lorenzo that he should have desired an interview with the uncompromising friar. After it was over, a crucifix was held before Lorenzo. He raised himself up to kiss it, fell back, and died. There are two very different accounts of what took place at the interview with Savonarola. On one hand, we have the account, written at the time by Polizian, who was present and who simply states that Savonarola exhorted Lorenzo to hold fast to the faith, to resolve to amend his life if spared, and to meet death 
if it was so to be, with fortitude, and that he prayed with him and gave him his blessing. The other account, which appeared long afterwards, is the well-known story that Lorenzo confessed to Savonarola three sins, which lay heavy on his conscience. The sack of Volterra, the bloodshed after the Pazzi conspiracy, and the misappropriation to his own use of some of the dower fund that Savonarola required from him a promise to restore the money thus misappropriated, to which it is said Lorenzo assented. That Savonarola then required that he should restore the liberties of Florence, to which Lorenzo made no reply, and that thereupon Savonarola left him unabsolved. This picturesque story bears on its face evidence of its falsity. It did not appear until fifty years after Lorenzo and Savonarola were both dead, and admittedly rests on hearsay evidence, whereas Polizian wrote as an eyewitness, and within a few weeks of the event. Supposing this story true, then it must have been related either by Lorenzo or by Savonarola, for it expressly states that none other was present when Lorenzo made his confession. Berlamacci, who put it forward, declared that he had the story from Savonarola's own lips. But, says Bishop Creighton, we may be pardoned for sparing Savonarola's fame, the supposition that he made political capital for his own glorification out of the secrets of the confessional. Still less probable is it that the tale was revealed by Lorenzo in an agony of remorse after Savonarola's departure and just before his death. Moreover, a still more conclusive fact has failed to be observed, namely, that, no matter what may or may not be the truth about them, the three things represented as weighing on Lorenzo's conscience could not have done so from Lorenzo's point of view. For the sack of Volterra, he was so remotely responsible, and had made such efforts to ameliorate the sufferings caused, that he could not have felt the matter weighing on his conscience. For the slaughter in connection with the Patsy conspiracy— he was not only not responsible, but had remonstrated with the infuriated people against it, and had saved some of those implicated in the crime. While as regards to the dower fund, the charge would, for the reasons already stated, have appeared to him merely absurd, and still more so, since Lorenzo's just dealing in all money matters is very noticeable, not only just, but liberal. Dealing in money matters was a marked feature of his character. The so-called misappropriation has been explained above, but in this connection it may be remarked that when four years afterwards Savonarola was himself the ruling power in Florence, exactly the same use or misappropriation of the money of this dower fund was continued, which completely stultifies any such charge as specially applicable to Lorenzo. Lastly, the final request attributed to Savonarola would have meant the return to a state of things which to Lorenzo represented everything most harmful to Florence's welfare. While it is inconceivable that Savonarola should have required from the dying man that which he was in any case at that moment powerless to perform, this story has probably played a greater part in creating the mental picture generally formed of Lorenzo the Magnificent than any of the authenticated facts of his life. The artifice of pretending that certain things weighed on his conscience is a much more effective way of instilling in us a belief that he had been guilty of those things than a plain statement to that effect would have been. 
The story has had a great vogue, both on account of its sensational character and of the opportunity it furnishes for calumniating the Medici, but since the careful analysis of it made by Bishop Creighton, its complete mendacity has been fully established. Roscoe's remark is justified. A story that exhibits evident symptoms of that party spirit which did not arise in Florence until after the death of Lorenzo, and which is entirely contradictory to the account left by Politian, written before the motives for misrepresentation existed, is rendered deserving of notice only by the necessity of its refutation. Lorenzo the Magnificent and Clarice Orsini had seven children. Pietro, who succeeded his father, Giovanni, afterwards Pope Leo X, Giuliano, afterwards Duc de Nemours, Maddalena, who married Francesco Cibo, Lucrezia, who married Jacopo Salviati, Maria, who died unmarried in 1487, Contessina, who married Piero Ridolfi. Lucrezia's husband was a great-grandson of Jacopo Salviati, who was Cosimo's friend, and was a cousin of the Archbishop Salviati hung in the Pazzi conspiracy. Lorenzo made the match to re-establish cordial relations between his family and their old friends, the Salviati. In appearance, Lorenzo the Magnificent was unprepossessing. At the same time, the portrait of him by Vasari, painted more than 50 years after Lorenzo's death by a man who never saw him, would seem not to give a true likeness of him. It neither accords with the descriptions of his appearance given by contemporary writers, nor with the portraits of him on medallions by contemporary medallists, and would almost seem intended to degrade his memory by giving him as sinister an appearance as possible, surrounding him with the attributes of a buffoon. Niccolo Valori, speaking of Lorenzo's appearance, says, He was above the common stature, broad-shouldered and solidly built, and second to none in athletic exercises. His complexion was dark, and although his face was not handsome, it was so full of dignity as to compel respect. It is well known that medallions of this period are, as a rule, much more reliable than painted portraits, and the two which exist of Lorenzo, by the celebrated contemporary medallists Bertoldo and Polo Giulolo, show a plain but very powerful face, with something of the look of his father, Piero il Cotoso. The portraits on these medallions also receive strong corroboration from the terracotta cast of Lorenzo's face taken after his death, and now the property of the Societa della Colombaria, so that we may conclude that these portraits, and not Vasari's picture, give us the true representation of Lorenzo. Speaking of the concentrated power of his face, Miss Crutwell says, in the best portraits that exist of him, that of the Patsy medal and the superb death mask of the confraternity of the Columbaria, the face, with its compressed lips, stern brow, and powerful jaw, might serve as the embodiment of physical and intellectual force. If, however, Lorenzo's outward appearance assisted him little, his manner more than restored the balance is said to have been so extraordinarily fascinating that it caused his plain face and harsh voice to be entirely forgotten. The statement of contemporary writers is fully borne out by various episodes in Lorenzo's life, which make it evident that he had an unfailing power of charming all, both high and low, who were brought in contact with him. 
Speaking of Lorenzo and his social capacity, Mr. Armstrong says, Of his qualities as a host and companion, there can be no question. He was the soul of courtesy and kindliness, always ready to aid talent, to oblige a friend, to grant a petition, to perpetrate a job, to be buttonholed in the public street. The simplicity and friendliness of his letters to his ambassadors fully account for the devotion with which they served him. For scholars and artists, he kept open house. Whoever came first, whatever his age or rank, took his seat at the host's side. His conversation, as his character, had the fascination of variety. At times his tongue had a rough edge. To a cousin who boasted of his copious supply of water at his villa, he says, then you might well afford to keep cleaner hands. To a Sienese who condoled with him on his indifferent eyesight and added the air of Florence was bad for the sight, Lorenzo retorts, and that of Siena for the brain. To one who adversely criticized the character of the musician Squarcialupo, Lorenzo said, if you know how hard it is to obtain perfection in any art, you would overlook shortcomings. His achievements have already been detailed but that a man who died at the age of 43 should have been able to do all that he did in raising Florence so high in political power and commercial prosperity, in maintaining peace of Italy and converting chronic enmity with surrounding states into friendship, in making the Tuscan language the general language of Italy by his works as an author, in carrying forward to so great an extent the resuscitation of learning and in helping so large the advancement of art is extraordinary. It did, in very truth, require that enduring, indomitable strength, which he symbolized by his crest of the three diamond rings, to achieve such results in so comparatively short a life. Lorenzo the Magnificent has been acknowledged by the United Voice of Europe to have been one of the most remarkable men who ever held the rule of a state, and his character has always interested mankind, though perhaps it is only in these days that his greatness in a larger sphere has come to be fully appreciated. He was a leader in an age which abounded with great men, and he has been recognized as being one of the chief inspiring forces of the 15th century. He is the most important man of all those whose story we are following, and it is therefore worthwhile to examine that much debated character in more detail than can be devoted to others. The violently contradictory opinions common in regard to the Medici culminate in the case of Lorenzo the Magnificent. With writers belonging to the one camp, he has every virtue. With those belonging to the other, every vice. With the former, all his actions are attributed to the noblest motives. With the latter, even the most ordinary actions are, in order to show base motives, distorted until they result in statements which are glaringly incompatible. Apart, however, from this point, another difficulty lies in the versatility of his character, a quality of many-sidedness which he shared with many of his family, but which was specially prominent in him. Speaking of this characteristic in Lorenzo, and the difficulty which it creates, Armstrong says as follows, It is the prize or the penalty of a versatile, receptive nature to be regarded as a mystery. The slower mind cannot follow with sufficient speed the workings of so sensitive an instrument, though the eye marks the multiplicity of results. 
The reality is that the action and reaction of circumstances and character are peculiarly rapid, but the observer believes that the outward manifestations are artificial and dramatic, having little relation to the inner life. This forms a real difficulty in the appreciation of the Southern European character by Anglo-Saxons, who are seldom genuinely versatile. They have an inborn, deep-seated distrust for such natures. And the few English public men, for instance, who have been so gifted, have been regarded at the best as problems, but more often as impostors or as characters abnormally weak and changeable. Thus it is that Lorenzo the Magnificent has been so often called a mystery. Really, however, there has seldom been a nature less mysterious. He was completely natural singularly open to the influence of circumstances. As his intellect was versatile, so his character was receptive. He possessed in abundance that quality of give and take, that power of impressing others and of receiving their impression, that gift of simpatia, which to the Italian expresses so much more than its English representative. Lorenzo was equally natural and unaffected, whether he were planning a comic novelty for the carnival or critically examining the last manuscript that his agents had brought or forwarded from Greece or elsewhere. At table, he would give grave advice to young Michelangelo, throw a rhyme or epigram across the board to Pulci, or discuss the problem of unity in plurality with Marsilio Ficino. He would give audience to an ambassador or a horse trainer or a popular preacher, hold a party caucus in the Via Larga, attend a critical meeting of the government, and then ride off to Carreggi or Cayano to play with his children, arise with the lark to ride to hounds or fly his favorite falcons. Lorenzo's versatility is the frequent theme even of his contemporary countrymen. A lover of the country rather than of the town, Whenever he could, he would escape to Poggio a Cayano, or more distant villas. He was fond of the country people, their manners, their songs, and their pleasures. His family life was extremely simple. He romped with his children, joined in their music, wrote a religious play for them to act. In Lorenzo's career, it is impossible to draw a hard and fast line between diplomacy and politics, art and literature, religion and philosophy, domesticity and public life country sports, and city functions. It is difficult to analyze so manifold a character. End of section 24